you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and make your way to Luke chapter 7. And I don't, you guys know, I don't care what medium, which you use to access the Word of God, whether it be on your phones, your tablets, or whatever, just open up the Word of God, find access to it tonight. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to pick up here in these next few moments. Have you ever been petitioning God for something specific? Asking Him to do this, or to show you that, or to open a door, or maybe provide an opportunity for you, and then have Him do it, but it be done in the most subtle of ways. Almost like it just kind of snuck up on you all at once. Most of the time, for me, this is how God leads me into my messages in my series for you guys here on Wednesday nights. Contrary to popular belief, He doesn't write it in the clouds. I don't walk into my office and find my Bible randomly opened with a pen that just appeared out of nowhere, pointing to a specific verse that then leads me into a message. God doesn't do those kind of things. I'm not talking about a mystical kind of thing. God's not a mystical kind of God. So, so many times, let me just say that I think a lot of us overlook the ways in which God speaks into our life because we're looking for something dramatic when God does something subtle instead. And so more times than not, when I come in here with a message or when I come in here with a series, God snuck it into a conversation somewhere or into an experience that I've had over the past weeks or past months or in my personal study time. So I had been praying for a while, anticipating, anticipating this semester to start back, asking God to lead me into a new series of studies that would be relevant for us as a group to dive into, but not having anything really jump out to me. And so it's a... Tuesday night, and I'm speaking to a group of young adults here in our church. When we hit this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, I'm just going to read a couple real quick. It says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And we began to discuss that word seal and how God through Christ has put his seal on us. In this context, to put a seal on something is to put a stamp of ownership on that thing. It is a mark of ownership. So it quite literally means, as you look at it in the context, that God, through Christ, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior by faith, puts his seal upon us. In other words, Jesus owns me. And so we were discussing that, and we were walking that out with each other, what it means to be owned by Jesus. And as I said those three words, Jesus owns me, I kind of looked at the group in front of me, and I thought, man, that'd be kind of like a cool shirt idea, to have some shirts made on the front that's just those three words, Jesus owns me. And I never really thought much about it after that. But as a couple of days later, God kind of brought that back to mind. Jesus owns me, and he's like, hey, that thing that you thought would be a good shirt idea, I think would be a good series idea. And so now, here we sit. God began to flood my heart with the awesomeness of that specific truth, how we who have by faith surrendered our lives to Jesus are owned by him. And you see this all throughout Scripture. Let me rattle off a few verses for you. And if you want to just jot these down for reference later on, I'm going to go through them kind of quick. Romans chapter 14, verse 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die... We die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Isaiah 43, 1. 
But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. John chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. And then verse 14. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And it is through that construct, this series, Jesus Owns Me, was built. But that statement means a few things. Things that we need to walk through and maybe be reminded of or possibly learn for the first time. And I believe God wants us to start by seeing something that took place in the lives of two particular women who had a different but similar encounter with Jesus. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, God's word reads this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. Jesus responds, A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, go, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now flip over to Luke chapter 8 with me, just a couple of pages over. And we're going to pick up in verse 40. And we have a separate woman having a separate encounter with Jesus. And God's word says in Luke chapter 8 and verse 40, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. 
But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I've taught both of these passages several different times, and it seems like I've taught one in specifically quite often here recently, but it is amazing how God's Word is a goldmine of truth that we can continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper in, regardless of places that we may have already mined out before. Both of these women came to Jesus, and both of them left different than how they came. Listen to me. When you come to Jesus in faith, in faith, you can't help but leave different than how you came. Both of these women came to Jesus and both of them left different than how they came. So with our time together tonight, I want to talk about this subject, putting the I in identity. Understanding our identity, who we are in Christ, is foundational for us as believers if we're going to live for His glory and work effectively in building His kingdom. If Jesus owns me, then he is the one who establishes my identity. I think it's worth repeating. If Jesus owns me, then he is the one who establishes my identity. In essence, Jesus puts the I in identity insofar as he is the one who declares who we are. I declare who you are in me. About three years ago, me and my wife bought a Labrador puppy from a couple of friends. And when we bought him, they had already given him a name, which was Henry. Which, you know, I don't know about all that. I'm kind of strange about giving dogs like too close to human names. And so once we bought him, we gave them the money. We bought the dog. We then had the right or the authority to do what? To change his name. And so Henry the Lab became Roman the Lab. In the same way, if Jesus is our Lord, if Jesus is our owner, then he is the one who gets to change our identity. He is the one who gets to rename us however he so chooses. And he does so in such a beautiful and profound way. That my heart aches to tell you guys tonight. And my heart aches hoping that you will fully grasp it tonight. Instead of just simply hearing it. So that being said, let me pray for us again real briefly. God, my prayer is that in these next few moments you would help me to do this message. The justice that it is worth receiving. Open up our hearts. Open up our minds. Open up our ears and plant this truth. Embed it, God, so deeply within our hearts that it never again gets removed. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So since Jesus has established our identity, there's a few things that I want to pull out of that tonight. Since Jesus has established our identity, your past has been dealt with. Your past has been 
dealt with. Both of these women, when they came to Jesus, had a past, and a very public one at that. And every single one of us sitting in this room tonight, you've got a past. And for most of us, your past probably isn't quite as public as these two women's were. The first woman is described in the passage as a sinner. Now imagine if that was the label that you bore everywhere that you went. That out in public, that's how you were known. As, quite simply, a sinner. This woman is known as being a sinner. The context tells us that more than likely she was a woman of the street. So in other words, she made her living by selling her body. No doubt, no doubt, her past would have found her in unspeakable places doing unspeakable things. And Simon, the man whose house she is in, knowing this woman, who she is, where she's been, the kind of things that she has been doing is repulsed by the fact that Jesus would allow her to touch him. That's the kind of identity this woman had established for herself. The fact that she's sitting here touching Jesus, Simon found it repulsive that Jesus would let this kind of a woman with this kind of a history, with this kind of an identity, come within proximity of him, let alone touch him physically. These were the things that her identity had been built upon. Imagine the guilt. Imagine the shame. Imagine the embarrassment that this woman carried around with her, knowing all the things that she had done and all the things that she had participated in. Now she's become convicted over her lifestyle. She's weeping at the feet of Jesus because of it. And even though she's broken and under conviction and moving towards repentance and faith in Jesus, she can't help but recall who she is. And then we see the second woman, who the Bible tells us for 12 years battled with bleeding. Now, in case you need that clarified, I'll just put it like this. It was her time of the month for 144 consecutive months. Now, I know that's something that us men in the room tonight could never relate to. But you ladies understand the struggle that this woman was going through. Imagine, imagine, 12 straight years. She couldn't find help anywhere. She couldn't find help from anybody. Doctor after doctor, the Bible tells us that she had been to, exhausting all of her funds to try and find somebody that could help her physical condition, only be told time and time again, I'm sorry, there's nothing that we can do. And here's the worst part of it all. During those times, she would be considered ceremonially unclean, which meant a few different things. It meant, number one, that she could not participate in corporate worship. So, ladies, imagine if we had a screening process at the door tonight, and this was a situation you found yourself in, you wouldn't be allowed in the building. You couldn't come in here and experience the worship that we just had. You couldn't sit in here and listen to the word of God being preached and taught over your life. You couldn't come in here and have fellowship with everybody else. She was ceremonially unclean, so she couldn't participate in worship. On top of all that, if she were to go out in public, which she inevitably had to do from time to time, she couldn't come in contact with anyone. Because if she were to touch anybody else, that would make them unclean as well. So when this woman stepped out in public, if someone were to see her, and come up and act as if they were about to touch her, she would have to scream, unclean. 
Unclean, unclean. Don't touch. Don't touch. So imagine for 12 years you can't give anybody a hug. You can't shake hands. You can't participate in worship. Every time you go out in public, something that you wish was private is made known and displayed to everybody around you. Unclean, don't touch me. This woman was having to socially distance before social distancing was ever actually a thing. And we've been battling doing it for, what, a year now? Twelve years. Unclean. No doubt that her identity had been established by her disease. Everywhere she went, she was that woman. When she went into the grocery store, there's that woman. When she went clothes shopping in town, there's that woman. When she showed up at the mom's get-together at the coffee shop, she's that woman. When you show up on campus, you're that woman. No doubt her identity would have been formed and shaped by she's that woman, that dirty, that broken, that busted up chick that nobody can seem to fix. But when they came to Jesus, did you hear me? But when they came to Jesus, both of these women were healed, not just physically, but spiritually. Jesus told them both, your faith has saved you. And at that moment, their past was dealt with. Those chains that they had worn for so long of the things that they had been identified by fell off. Those labels that they had carried around with them out in public for so long that the world had chosen to identify them by were removed. And for those of us who have professed Jesus as our Savior, good news, your past has been dealt with. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. Just in case y'all think I'm giving you some feel good hot smoke tonight. Jeremiah 31 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Your past has been dealt with. When you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, God somehow in His sovereignty, even though He is all-knowing, chooses to remember no more all of your transgressions, all of your mistakes, all of your sins, those unspeakable things that you have done in unspeakable places. Those 12 to 10 to 8 years you were known for being that person with that issue. Those experiences that you've joined in on, those thoughts that you have entertained, those actions that you have taken, they do not define who you are in Christ. One of the most expressed privileges of being a child of God is knowing that because of who He is, I'm no longer who I was. But one of the most saddening pictures... Is seeing a child of God not living in Christ as who they are because they won't let go of who they were. If God has chosen to remember your past no more, 
We have no right to stand in a position where we continue to drag it with us. Your past has been dealt with. Jesus puts the eye in your identity. But because your past has been dealt with, the news gets better. Your present has been defined. Jesus has dealt with your past, but he's also defined your present. As Jesus personally addresses these two women, we see their identity be defined by Jesus. To the woman known as a sinner, he calls her forgiven. You see this woman, Simon? I tell you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So this woman who was known as a sinner, Jesus calls forgiven. To the woman with the disease, he calls her something even more intimate. He calls her daughter. Do you see what's taking place? There's a name change. One who was once called sinner, Jesus calls forgiven. One who was once called diseased, Jesus calls Daughter, it's a definition of a new identity that Jesus was assigning to both of these women. She had many sins in her life, but she's forgiven. Jesus didn't call her sinner after that. He called her forgiven. This woman who had struggled with the disease of blood, after Jesus healed her of her disease, he didn't call her diseased. He called her daughter. It's intimate, it's personal, it's an identifier that Jesus gave to both of these women. Jesus, in that present moment, defines their new identity in Him. But listen to me. This is big. And I don't want you to miss this part tonight, and specifically. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 39 with me, real quick. It says, Now when the Pharisee, who we know was Simon, who had in invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. One of my favorite childhood games to play was Simon Says. And y'all know how it works, right? Like whatever Simon says is what you do. So if Simon says stand, you stand. If Simon says jump, you jump. If Simon says sit, you sit. If Simon says turn around, you turn around. I used to love playing that game as a kid. In this passage, Simon says about this woman that she is a sinner. Listen, we have a real adversary out there. And it's not Simon, it's Satan. But that's the game that he wants to play with us as believers. Satan says sinner. Satan says diseased. Satan says mistake. Satan says failure. Satan says worthless. Satan says forgotten. Satan says disappointment. Satan says unforgivable. Wanting us to just go along with whatever it is that he says. And as believers, we've got to stop playing Satan says with our identity. But if he insists on playing the game, if he insists on playing this game with you, watch this with me. Luke chapter 7 verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Praise be unto God. Jesus has something to say to our adversary. Whenever the game starts up, bring Jesus to the match. Turn Satan says into Jesus says. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13, I am the salt of the earth. Jesus says in John 1, 12, I am a child of God. Jesus says in John 15, 15, I am his friend. Jesus says in John 15, 16, I am chosen. 
Jesus says in Romans 8, 17, I am his co-heir. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I am new. Jesus says in Ephesians 4, 24, I am righteous and holy. Jesus says in Ephesians 2, 15, I am a citizen of heaven. Jesus says in Ephesians 2, 10, I am his masterpiece. Jesus says in 1 Peter 2, 10, I am his possession. Satan has no right to name who Jesus bought by his blood and claimed. You don't owe me devil. I'm sealed in Christ. He calls me salt, child, friend, chosen, co-heir, new, righteous, holy, citizen, masterpiece, possession. Jesus owns me and he defines my presence. He puts the eye in my identity. Stop playing these games with the adversary over your identity. I told you we bought the dog. That means we got the name on whatever we wanted. I read a passage to you earlier from Corinthians where God's word says, You have been bought with a price. The price being the blood of Jesus flowing down from the cross. And guess what? Once He bought you with His blood, It gave him, and only him, the right to define your identity. Don't let Satan name you when Jesus has claimed you. Your present has been defined. Your past has been dealt with. One last thing. Your future has been decided. After radically changing the lives of both of these women, Jesus tells them to go in peace. He says it to both of them, verbatim. Go in peace. From that moment on, nothing could change the new identity that they had in him. And nothing could remove the salvation that Jesus had brought to them. And when those things are decided... You know what you can do? You can go in peace. My salvation is solidified. But guess what else? My future is finalized. It's not up in the air. It's not in question. It's not being tossed back and forth like a wave in the sea. My future is finalized. You know what that floods my life with? Peace. Go in peace. You know, one of the last things probably these women had experienced in a very long time was peace. Because when your identity is in turmoil and being fought over between the forces of hell and heaven, nothing about that's peaceful. I want you guys to know that every single night before you come in here, I get down on my knees before God and I beg and plead for the souls in this room that are still being warred over. And that your soul might find peace in God. Go in peace. My salvation solidified. My future has been finalized. Jesus owns me. But I know for the crowd... 
in particular that we have in this room, the future is a big deal to you. And I'm not trying to minimize that whatsoever. Let me give you some encouragement about your future. If Jesus owns you, if you are a blood-bought son or daughter of the king, if Jesus owns your life, he hasn't called you to figure out your future. He's called you to follow his footsteps. One more time. One more time for the adults in the back who think that they have their futures established, but they have no idea when God might show up with a different path. If you are owned by Christ, He has not called you to figure out your future, He's called you to follow His footsteps. Can I give you a hint of what that brings? Peace. To know that my future has been decided is a peaceful place for us as believers to live in. Jesus has dealt with our past. He has defined our present and he has decided our future. He has put his seal of ownership on us. We are His. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.